You're listening to a Cripple and Co. production. Hey, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I'm here with my friend Kristen, who's a friend of the show, and you've heard her on the show before. But did you know she's also a counselor in training with a physical disability? Hey, Kristen, can you tell us more about that? Hey, Andrew, I sure can. Um, I've been working as a peer support counselor for about seven years now, and I'm now expanding my services, offering trauma-informed accessible support to community members. Uh, Some of the things I cover are anxiety, depression, grief, relationship issues, and all from a disability-centered standpoint. I I love that so much, and I love that we're finally talking about offering disability-centered counseling to other disabled folks because it's so rarely in the field and I'm so glad you're doing that. And so I wonder, Kristen, are you offering these services to, oh, I don't know, listeners of a particular podcast on this particular ad right now? Absolutely, Andrew. I'm offering accessible services to listeners of this podcast and anyone else who's interested in contacting me. And she's also doing that. Yeah. Yeah, you're also doing it whether you're disabled or not, which is totally great. So this service is for everyone. And I think what makes it unique is that even if you're not disabled, you can learn things from a disability-centered lens. And I think that's really important. Yes. So Kristen, this is awesome and this is so great. Can you tell us what your hours are like? Sure. Right now I'm able to offer pretty flexible availability to meet the needs of everyone. I know that Um, sometimes having physical disabilities and just life being busy in general it's hard to uh, make time for things like counseling but I think it's really important so um, when we touch base hopefully we can work out a time that works for you that's awesome now you know you and I know from trying to get traditional counseling services in, in the past how often financially inaccessible they are so what's the cost of all this great service Yeah, because I believe that uh, counseling should be accessible and affordable for everyone. My fee right now is a sliding scale starting at $20 per hour. That is so, that's, that is, that's like basically cheaper than anything you can buy on Amazon right now. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty awesome. So I want everybody to know how they can get a hold of you and how they can, how they can, access your services because what you're offering is so important. How do people get a hold of you? So right now, the best way to reach me is through email. It's kristen.williams10 at gmail.com. That's kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N dot Williams, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S, one zero at gmail.com. Amazing. I'll make sure also, Kristen, that all of this is in the show notes for the episode today. Thank you so Thanks. much for Thank you so much for being here and telling us what you do. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Bye. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. 
Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I'm coming at you with a titillating reminder that pre-sales for the world's first disability-driven sex toy, the Bump and Joystick, are open right now. You can go to www.getbumpin.com. That's www.getbumpin.com. And you can pre-order your very own Bump and Joystick right now, or you can get a gift card for that deliciously disabled person in your life right now. Do it now. Go get it and be part of this amazing new innovation in sex tech. Thanks, friends. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonopussy are do-it-yourself molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. If you shop at Clonawilly.com right now and use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you can get 20% off site-wide. Wow! That's a deal that cannot be cloned. I talked to one of the representatives the other day, and they are more than willing to answer any questions you have about how to make your own clone of willy or clone of pussy, how to use the kit. They're so, so willing to go on this journey of cloning a willy or cloning a pussy with you, and they're super nice and super responsive to any concerns. So if you want to pick up your own clone of willy or clone of pussy kit right now, head over to clonawilly.com and use promo code DARKPOD, that's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout right now. And remember, this is a deal that cannot be cloned. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. This is a podcast that looks at disability stories. It's like sitting down with a really close friend to have a real conversation about disability, sexuality, and everything else about the disability experience that we don't talk about. The things about being disabled, we keep in the dark. Here is your deliciously disabled host, disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. And thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm, of course, your deliciously disabled host, Andrew Gerza. Let us get comfy, cozy, and crippled, and let us get this episode started, shall we? So I've been trying to think about where I wanted to take the show and what I wanted to do with it, and, like, I want to do some mini-series on the show and do months of, like, just specific episodes and different things. So I'm thinking that I want to try out in March or April, not right now, but in March or April, I might want to try doing like four or five weekly episodes of things like crime, of things like doing a whole month of Great Flicks and Joysticks where we just review movies, things like that, where we review um, disability-themed content for a whole month. I want to do different themes in the show, and I'm, I'm looking into doing that kind of stuff. So let me know via email or the Instagram. You can email us at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com or DM me on the Instagram 
at Andrew Gerza underscore and let me know what kind of like long form series do you want to do. I'm really fascinated by true crime and I want to look at doing a bunch of series that I've kind of been toiling with in my head for a while. You've heard me have my guests on this show, the girls from Wine and Crime. You've heard them on there a bunch. I'm really fascinated by this. So that's something that I want to do. So let me know what kind of series you'd want me to have on the show. And I'd love to hear from you. Also, it's a brand new year. So I hope you have had a great new year. I hope that that 2022 hasn't been wholly inaccessible to you. Even though we're still going through the pandemic. I I just hope that all of you out there are doing okay. And I hope you like listening to this. And I hope that I can provide you some brevity and some community when we do episodes on of this podcast. So thank you for listening. But enough of my rambling and let's get started today. On the show today, I sit down and talk with my new friend, Daniel Sluman, who is a disability rights activist and disabled poet out of the UK in London. He just released his third collection of disability-centric poetry called called Single Window, which he published through Nine Arches Press in September of 2021. He was such a talented, talented uh, disabled writer, but we talk about a lot more than that. We talk about his experience being an amputee and living with chronic pain. We talk about our feelings around um, disability discourse on the internet, we talk about the abysmal experience of disability benefits in the UK and how they're not accessible at all, and, and how they should make a horror movie around the horrors of trying to navigate that system because it is so bad. We talk about his experience being with a disabled partner who also has chronic pain and how that's informed his understanding of disability. There's so much that we unpack here and we talk about in this episode. Plus, he has a really sexy British accent, so I enjoyed sitting down and talking with him. Um, and I really, really hope... <coughs> Let me try again. <coughs> I was choking on something there. I really, really hope that you enjoy his interview because we go into so many different facets of the disability experience and... We talk about a lot of different things. Plus, he reads us some poetry from his new collection. So that's pretty cool. And it was a pretty, pretty great, powerful, important interview that I'm bringing to you right now. And I'm so excited to shine a light on his story. So without further ado, here's my interview with Daniel Sluman, disabled poet and activist, right now on Disability After Dark. Daniel Sluman, hello. Hi, how are you doing? I'm so good. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I am. Um, it's about three o'clock the other side of the Atlantic here, and it's rained a bit earlier, and I'm having a nice chilled out day. What about you? I just got up, and it's morning time here in Toronto. Um, so I just got up, and I I raced to do this because you have been so kind to reschedule with me a bunch of times this week because disability is real so uh 
<laughs> thank you so much for for being here i'm so excited uh and you actually you were one of the people that contributed to our handy book from what i remember too so so it's really cool to talk to you on the other side of things outside of handy and talk about like disability and all the other stuff so it's it's really great to have you here thank you yeah that that handy project awesome isn't it i don't know um if you've done any podcasts so far specifically about it have you uh i have if you go if you if and if anybody listening wants to know what we're doing with handy we do like once a month or once every couple months we do an episode called the handycast on this very same podcast feed so there are a couple of i think there are 10 episodes of that where heather and i sit down and chat with different people and we do it as we do it as like a little bonus podcast within this podcast it's fun that's awesome yeah, yeah it's a great project and i'm 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 seeing a few other things um happen about disability and sexuality and a few other people making things out there so it seems to be um something that's changing and, and doing really well at the moment yeah it's a it's a it's a really uncharted territory is what i would say it is um and people you know Handy obviously wants to be the first because we're the best. No, I'm kidding. But, yeah. but you know, we want to, I, I think there needs to be, definitely needs to be more um, people in that field making stuff and talking about this and doing it and learning. And so it's, a, it's really cool. But we're not here to, to do an ad for why Handy is the best. We're here to do, <laughs> we're here to talk about you. So can you, Daniel, introduce yourself a little bit to the audience. Tell us a bit about who you are and what you do. Okay, so I am 34 and I've been writing poetry for the last maybe 10, 15 years, something like that. Um, and I'm based in London at the moment. Um, I write primarily about the disability experience and I, I write through my own experience and that of myself and my wife. So my wife has Crohn's disease and fibromyalgia. So um, that affects her on a day-to-day basis. And um, I have a amputation, which I got when I was 11 years old. I can talk a little bit about my disability story if you'd like. Yeah, I would love that. Sure. So um, I was a kind of relatively able-bodied child until at 11 years old, they found a tumor in my leg and it was osteosarcoma, bone cancer. Um, which is kind of one of the more prevalent um, cancers in prepubescent um, children. And usually what happens, Andrew, when you have this is you have some chemotherapy and it shrinks the tumor. And then at some point that tumor in the bone is taken away and replaced with kind of a a metal implant. Okay. Um, But in some cases like mine, some some tumors just do not react to chemotherapy, regardless of, of, you know, new kind of innovative ones and things like that. And mine didn't react to, to anything they were doing. So they made the decision that it would be safest to um, amputate me at the hip. So I have a really rare amputation, which affects me in, in very different ways to a lot of amputees. I have an amputation right at my hip level. So I have no real kind of stump to use in a prosthetic. And after that hip amputation, I had years and years of checkups. And thankfully, they, they caught it at the right time and they cut far enough. And um, I've had no more secondary cancer since. And I think now the chance of me getting 
getting the same cancer would be the same as anyone anyone getting cancer. So yeah, that's me really. I've been living as an amputee for over 20 years, um, walking on crutches because a lot of amputees um, like me don't use prosthetics. Um, well, I would guess more because some... I guess because you can't really ha- have a prosthetic the way the way it's disarticulated, right? So like from what I'm from what I'm picturing, and you don't have to show me, but what I'm picturing is it's like is did they take out your hip? Like how, how what is it? So it's it's right at the hip line. So the the femur that goes into the socket that goes into the hip that's all taken away. And, and yeah, I guess your understanding of most kind of leg amputations would be, especially where we're showing a lot of things in Paralympics and, and things like that, is you have a stump that fits into uh, the hole of a prosthetic yeah. and that, that connects, yeah. yeah. Um, but if you don't have a stump, what they do is they have to create a prosthetic that wraps around your hips um, and that makes it really cumbersome and really heavy and really hot. And so I'd say maybe three quarters of the people with amputations like mine don't end up um, using a prosthetic at all. Oh wow! So like you're just you're just you're just hanging out with like no because I'm so I'm so used to like again I've had I've had people on the show who have prosthesis and so like they'll they sh- they've shown me like how the how it goes in and how it fits and like I've seen that and again I like I've seen Paralympians with prosthetics like and that's what we're so used to. But I cannot picture what you're saying. I believe you, but I have no idea. Like I don't believe what I don't understand what you're saying. But so yeah. like, so how does it feel to like be out there in the world with that kind of imputation? Um, it it took a lot of getting used to when I was younger. It, I remember leaving the hospital after the surgery and being out of that door and suddenly everyone is staring at you and it's this new sensation that I've gotten used to over the last 20 years wherever I go in public I will be stared at and I don't even think it registers on a on a deep level with me um but I, I guess a lot of a lot of people with my amputation do it because we're so much more mobile with crutches and our day-to-day existence is so much easier that the kind of the negatives of stigmatization and um, being seen in that way as kind of othered is outweighed by the fact that it just makes our life a lot easier to just walk yeah. on crutches. And so like I know crutches are not a common mobility device that we talk about a lot, or we often see them as like a temporary thing that the hospital gives you or like like a doctor gives you and then eventually you'll transition to like a wheelchair or a prosthetic or does like how does it feel using crutches as your main mobility device it's interesting you say that because that that is the way we see them don't we crutches are kind of like an interim uh, a medium between being able-bodied and disabled yeah you know we kind of use them until we get what we're meant to have, which is usually a wheelchair or a prosthetic or something. But for me, they've been, they've been the main, the main kind of thing I've used. And so um, I have a, a great relationship with being on crutches and using mobility aids. Um, only now I have more chronic pain nowadays. 
um, which means I use a wheelchair occasionally. And that is a completely different experience for me. Being out Oh, there. yeah. I mean, I'm a wheelchair. I'm a full-time wheelchair user, so I know how to like navigate at least a power chair. What is the experience of being a part-time wheelchair user for you? Okay, so for me, when I'm out walking on crutches, I am very obviously othered, um, very obviously maybe physically deformed in abled people's minds. And like suddenly this, this weird thing that people are seeing. When I'm in a wheelchair, it's like people don't see me at all. It's like I'm invisible. Um, you, you kind of become, become non-human, become kind of just another, another kind of aspect of, of the pathway. Um, and that was a really weird experience for me the first time I had that. So in neither instance with the crutches or the wheelchair, neither, in neither instance is someone seeing you as a, as a human being, like as a full no. person. That's, no, kind of, as... that, that's horrible. I, I would say, yeah, not as a full person, but at least when I'm walking on crutches, maybe people see me as more of a potentially fully embodied person. I think people have a lot of attachments to wheelchair users. So when they see a wheelchair user, they automatically think, um, they automatically kind of lump us all into to one kind of um, category together. And a lot of times there's um, an implication or an idea that, that we have cognitive difficulties or that we have um, other kind of disabilities that, that aren't visible. Yeah. I mean, you, you know this experience a lot better than me. I've only been out in a wheelchair like maybe like 20, 30 times, but you know this experience a lot better than me, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, for sure I do. Like, I, they do think, like, I'll never get tired of telling people when I walk down the street sometimes and I'm just going down the street and doing my thing and having my day or going to go somewhere, somebody almost always will stop me and say, do you need help to go somewhere? And I'm always like, oh, I don't know how to like, I don't know, I don't know how to answer this. Cause like maybe yeah. I do, but also I could be just fine. And like, I know they're trying to be like nice and stuff. So it's, it's, it's always, it's always weird when you go out in the world and see how people are learning about wheelchairs and learning about wheelchair users and learning about how to, that you, you see their brains. Like, I don't know how to compute this. Like they're not sure how to navigate that. So, but I can imagine for you, like going from your crutches, which sounds like are more mobile for you to mm. something that is more markedly disabled. Like people always say to you, like, Oh, are you sick? When are you getting off? Like, do people ever ask you, like, when are you getting off the crutches? Like, when are you going to be? Is that everything they say? I've I've had some awkward moments where like people have seen me on crutches and they haven't seen that I've got a missing leg because I'm behind a shop front or something, and they'll they'll make some joke about all oh, being in the being in the walls or um or have you got a broken foot or broken ankle thing, and and that's always quite awkward. Um, yeah, like. Why would we make fun of veterans also? Like, that's not why, like, no. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, but yeah, I, I haven't, uh, do you get people as well, like, trying to touch your wheelchair out in public? Um, I used to, not so much anymore. It doesn't have, and I, I guess because I haven't, well, because it's COVID, I haven't left the mm. house in about two years. So I don't, like, um, but not so much anymore. I think people, at least where I am, don't touch the chair so much. Um, yeah. but they have done in the past. And if somebody 
Like, if I'm making new friends with a person and they think we're cool, they'll, like, rest their arm there and have to be like, hey, we are cool, but, like, don't touch the chair. And, I'm not furniture, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so, that, like, that's something that I that I um, haven't experienced too much of, but it happens to people a lot, a lot. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I can imagine going out, just going out. I can't believe people would, like, I know somebody who uses who uses crutches, and they were once called Tiny Tim, and I was like, oh, no, like, who? Oh. Why do people oh. do that? Why? Why? Yeah, no, I've, I've like, especially late at night, um, certainly when I was younger, out of clubs and things, you get people making comments, and drunken people trying to knock you off your crutches, and all knock that Knock you off your crutches, wow. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, okay, anyone, I'm, I'm all about a good drink. But please, if you're out there in the world, please don't do this to humans. It's horrible and not nice and super ableist. Exactly. And I, I get the legless joke a couple of times. I've had that. That's kind of a term here for being absolutely drunk is, are you legless? Um, so I've had that shouted at me a few times before on the street. I mean, I can see why somebody would think that's funny. Like, I, I get where the humor is supposed to be. But also, yeah. like, not funny. Like, if, if you were yeah. drunk, if you were drunk and you made the joke, like, "Oh, I'm legless," like that, that's funny. I love it. That, yeah. But if you, if they don't know you and they're a stranger screaming at you, I don't like that at all. That's no, no. Um, but tell me a little bit about your experience learning to accept disability as an identity, because for every single disabled person, this is a journey. This is an ebb and flow and it doesn't happen overnight and the acceptance of disability doesn't come like you don't get a handbook that's like oh i'm disabled now here's what i need to like it takes time so what is that what is that journey of acceptance of disability been like for you well i think ebb and flow is a great way to describe it um i guess because the first 10 years after my disability or so, I was able to move around so easily. I kind of didn't process being disabled because I could kind of perform able-bodiedness um, in, in most kind of um, social situations and things like that. And it was only kind of very specific things that, that would kind of remind me that I'm disabled. Um, but as I've kind of grown up from that point and, and as I've become in, in more pain, I'm, I've got chronic back pain and I'm less mobile and it affects my day to day. I've been forced into a position where I have to kind of um, deconstruct and unpack this stuff about disability and about identity. And um, it's really been the last five, 10 years that, that it's been done. And I guess I've gone from very much not wanting to be seen as disabled, not seeing any pride or any positivity in being disabled, to seeing disability as the most important aspect of my identity and something that gives me advantages um, in this kind of short life we lead over a lot of able people. Um, that's that's what I write about a lot. Yeah, and and I think like I think that you know the time that you were you were 11 right when you had all that stuff happening to you yeah 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 so so those 10 years are your formative years and you're going through hormonal changes and being a teenager and all those things are happening anyway so like I can't imagine being 
15 and like having gone through, you know, only four years of being an amputee and having like, that would fuck anybody up. So of course you were like, I want to distance myself from all this stuff because I just want to be a teenager. I just want to be a kid. I just want to like, I want to do what everybody else is doing. So of course, the, of course it would take time for the positivity to come. When was there a specific moment in your like journey where you discovered the advantages and we're like, oh, this is a thing that I can enjoy and talk about and I can find like disabled pride in this. When did that start happening? Um, I think I think as I've as I've got older and, and settled down, so I've been with my I've been with my wife um, for seven and a half years now. Um, we've been married for five, and um, I think since I've I've become settled and, and realised I am around the people who I want to be around. I'm doing the things I want to do. I'm in the place I want to be when all these kind of open kind of channels get shut there's no real place to go for happiness and, and understanding and kind of yourself and, and thinking about um who you are who you want to be what values you want to encompass um and what kind of example you want to lead and i guess it was at that point when i kind of got to the stage right i've got the love of my life um i've got a secure housing situation um, I know what I'm doing for my career. I'm a writer that I really started kind of looking at disability and, and kind of accepting it as an identity, I guess. So when you felt secure in all the other aspects of your life and you're like, okay, I have my person, I have a good, I'm working, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm making my way. And, I, and we know being a writer like doesn't bring in a ton of dollars, but like at least, like at least you're working good. So, so once you felt secure enough, you're like, oh, now I can talk about this now I can bring this up. Yeah, and maybe, maybe to an extent that's just being forced to do it. Maybe I had to do that because I had nowhere else to go, nothing else to kind of, um, you know, you can't blame what I'm unhappy because I'm single or I'm unhappy because, you know, I haven't got food in the fridge or I haven't got a place to stay. As soon as those things are kind of taken care of, I, I guess it, I kind of saw it as a responsibility to sort myself out to some extent and, and think about myself as a disabled person um and yeah I mean what about you because you've had a very different journey from me My, mine kind of has a a beginning and then this sudden disability event and and me kind of slowly realizing what about you with a very different kind of trajectory I mean I think that and that's a great question I think that um my experience of being disabled has been a long one I've been a wheelchair user since I was four years old I've been, um, I've been have I have CP and all the things that come with it since I was born. So like that, that's I'm I know how to handle that. What I what I'm struggling with now is I've been chronically ill with IBS stuff for the last five some years, and that mm. is a whole other fucking journey of like, how do I do this? How do I also yeah. be? I can be disabled. I know how to speak about that. I know how to speak about that. I know the language around that. I know how to craft like the greatest tweets about that. I know how to do all that. <laughs> I know how to be a disabled person. What I don't know how to do and what I'm learning how to do is to be sick and disabled. And like, how do you navigate sexuality with a sickness and an illness? And how do you navigate 
talking about that stuff and how do you navigate like being a professional while being sick and kind of like, you know, how many times did you and I have to be like, oh, you know, we're not, I can't do this today. Like, how do you yeah. navigate, how do you navigate this air of like capitalism and professionalism and trying to feed yourself while also being sick? And so that's kind of what I'm kind of learning to do right now. I know how to be disabled. I know how to talk about being a wheelchair user. I know how to do all that. But there are days where all of those things come crashing in on me. And I hate, I hate it. Like, but I think that's part of the journey. Like I think part of accepting being disabled or being chronically ill or whatever it is, is to be like, there are days where you fucking hate it. And it's so yeah. that and that's okay. And we should we need to find spaces to talk about that more. And so that's why I take to social media a lot and I share my like really personal shit because I think the narratives of disability and chronic illness are steeped in two schools which are either it's really horrible or it's the you have to overcome everything and I'm kind of like well yeah. can't we live somewhere in between both of those places like can't there be a middle ground where like sometimes it's great and sometimes it's shit and let's talk about it like so that's what that's what I'm learning to do is to find that sweet spot between being disabled and chronically ill and how do we how do we talk about that so like for me that's kind of what I'm learning to do the being disabled part is old hat. I know how to do that, but being sick and disabled is a whole new journey. Yeah. And I, I think what you're describing is, is, is holding on to two different things at the same time and saying these are equally true and coexisting that yes, disability is something I can be proud about. There are positives. Um, it's done some wonderful things for myself and my life at the same time, but they really suck. I wasn't able to get pain, good pain management. Um, I wasn't able to go out and do this thing. And it, we live in a very kind of binary world, especially when it comes to opinions, especially when it comes to social media. So I think the more we see people, disabled people saying that these both things can be true at the same time, the better. Yeah. And I don't think we're doing that in disability, like social justice and social media world. We don't do that. Disability... I, th- I feel on social media is very black and white, very like mm. you're either like you're either for this cause or you're against it, but you can't be somewhere in between. Like, yeah, my relationship with the word abled is very much in between. I feel squidgy about it and I feel awkward about it because I'm like, I get why people say it. But for me, it's like mm, I don't want to create a division between non-disabled and disabled because I'm like, I want to build a bridge and I want to find ways to like help that community come to terms with their ableism and like so I always feel so not uncomfy but just like ooh, how do we find a space to talk about it but if, if you if I say on social media like hey I want to talk about building a bridge between non-disabled and disabled the disabled community will come for me and be like why would you want to do that they're all the worst like so it's so yeah. it's such a complicated thing but I think we do need to come to a place where we as disabled people can say two things are true let's talk about it yeah i i think it's uh taking that that old phrase um you know hate the sin not the sinner it's the same with with ableism um able people are, are, are acting in ways that they've been taught by society that they've been told if you if you act in these ways they'll be good for you you'll get rewards yeah. and these these are the narratives and the concepts that um 
make us othered and make us stigmatized and make life for many of us um, unbearable at the worst of times. So it's it's completely okay to want to to want to connect with people regardless of whether they're able-bodied or disabled. It's just that you've got to do the same thing that we've had to do, Andrew. We've had to deconstruct our own internalized ableism. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not the fault of able people that that they are taught to believe in this. Um, they're in a constant state of suspended disability for me. They they are one. Oh, they I are like one, that. I've never heard about it called that. I've never heard it called suspended disability before. I like that. <laughs> I've, I've I've used it a couple of times in in essays, and I'm just going to keep saying it until other people start saying it as well. Um, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make a tweet the minute we're done recording this. It's like I found okay. a new. It's don't be surprised if you get tagged in a tweet about in about like an hour. <laughs> That's cool. Now I think I think this is what it is. This is a fear that able people have, and it's why the the narratives around COVID are so much based on um, the disaster of young, fit, able-bodied, married person is killed by COVID. That's that's the big narrative of COVID-19. Oh, this 33-year-old mother of two who was perfectly able-bodied was, you know, on a ventilator because of COVID. This is the fear. Able people are in a constant state of suspended disability and it terrifies them. Yeah. And um, I, I guess part of our job has to be to try and kind of burst that bubble and say you can be disabled and you can be sick and also be happy. I mean, um, I mean, and that just hearing you say that is a real. It, that's even hard for me to swallow. It's hard for me as a disabled person and as a chronically ill person. Even that's like what? No, you can, like it. It took me a second to, even when you just said it to be like, no, you can't. In my brain, I was like, no, you can't. But you're right. We have to constantly do that. But I think, you know. Something you said a second ago, which I almost forgot, but I'm going to try to remember. You said, um, you know, the thing we have to do with with able-bodied people is it's not their fault. I feel like a lot of disability discourse on social media is it's fun to be edgy and cool to be like, yeah, this able person is the worst. And I'm just like, well, that, okay. But like, that doesn't, that's not going to help us. That's, I'm glad you're getting it out. Yeah. Good, good for yeah. you. But like this narrative of what I struggle with is the narrative of let's make fun of the able-bodied person for doing something ableist and call them out and put it on social media and make it a big tweet and have it go viral and have it become this big thing and then it's like well I get why you're doing that because you want to get the anger out good for you but also like people are going to see that and then no one's going to want to no one is going to want to connect with you. They're going to, they're going to turn it inwards because they're afraid of saying something wrong and you've just yelled at them on a social media platform. So how are they going to come with a question or wanting to learn if you scream at them? So I struggle with disability and social media discourse because I'm like, I know what you're doing and I see what you're trying to do, but like, I don't know if we're going to move the needle forward if we just keep doing that. Yeah, I think it's it's that thing of, of being being critical and centering um, the the otherness and the stigmatization and, and the, the things that, that we are affected by without necessarily resorting to personal attacks and, and understanding that people on mass don't form narratives unless they're motivated to do so. And yeah. um, we need to start putting out more 
now we've got social media now we've got the internet and all the wonderful things that that that, um that connects to we need to start kind of doing what you're doing at the moment in terms of sharing a lot of tweets about um aspects of disability and um narratives in the media currently that are ableist trying to to educate people and at the same time give them good examples of people in the media and in society who are disabled and happy or sick and happy because we just haven't got them yet yeah and i I just think the yelling at somebody for even if they do an ableist thing and even if the ableist thing they do is horrible i'm not saying we can't be critical of that i'm saying like this person is just blissfully ignorant and we need to like remember that and give them a leg up so that when they want to learn instead of yelling at them and I say this so many times in the show, but I'll say it again because it's true. Instead of yelling at them and screaming at them, which feels good in the moment, believe me, I've done it. It's fun for a second. But, <laughs> but then like, but then like, you know, afterwards they shut down. And I talked to one of my able-bodied friends recently. And I said, how do you feel when you're trying to learn about something about disability and you see the discourse online? And he said, oh, I don't ever want to, I don't want to learn. I don't want to ask any questions because I feel like I've done something wrong automatically by asking something so and when I do talks like part of the reason why and in my talks I always say to people like hey so do you have any questions about what we just said and everybody will sit there quietly and like not say a word and nobody will ask any questions and then I'll say to them after like why why didn't you ask anything and they'll go oh because you know I didn't want to say the wrong thing and I was scared you get mad and I was scared you get upset and I kind of go well fuck how do we yeah. tell people that it's okay to be, I don't want to say it's okay to be ableist, but it's, I always say like, it's okay to have ableist thoughts. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means you have shit to work on. Like, yeah. just like we all do, just like we all do with racism and all the other, all the other isms in the world. All of us have that the propensity to have those thoughts. So when someone has an ableist thought, we have to like, instead of screaming at them, we have to guide them into like, okay, here's why that was wrong. I'm not yeah. going to hate on you, but I'm going to call you in as a friend. Oh, I just saw you say goodbye to your person. Sorry, I was just giving my wife a kiss. Oh, no, I saw, I saw. I was like, that's adorable. <laughs> um, um, that's cute. So, so let's talk about that, though, for a minute. Tell, tell me about being in a relationship with another disabled person and what's, what's that like for you? I... I think it's interesting because it's um I was talking to someone about this recently and you really don't see a lot of um a lot of representations of of couples when both are disabled or no, you especially don't. with different disabilities. Yeah. I I feel like with the kind of with the way culture is, like we're just starting to see representations of um interabled relationships. Yeah. Um where someone is kind of very kind of performatively able-bodied and then somebody is kind of um is a wheelchair user or it's has like markedly issues. disabled yeah 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 and so we're, we're just starting that's kind of the start of the conversation but to get to the place where where both are disabled we're we're not there yet um I, I've learned so much more about disability through experiencing um what my wife goes through than I have through my own journey I would say um having a chronic illness and 
being a woman especially those those two things are an absolutely different experience than I've ever had in in the medical establishment yeah um I have I've seen my wife talked to in ways by doctors and specialists that they have never talked to me um and I I have this conversation with a lot of my friends a lot a lot of who a lot of them who have things like fibromyalgia, Crohn's, Ehlers-Danlos, um, endometriosis, chronic fatigue, ME, that kind of thing. A lot of them have this shared experience um, with the medical establishment. So that's, that's one thing that I've really learned from, from being in a relationship with another disabled person. I've learned just how gendered the medical establishment is um, and how much different my experience of it has been to my wife. And how privileged, like, like, you can go into a doctor's office and they'll 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 listen to you more yeah. readily than they would her. Yeah, I mean, especially they they'll see the amputation and they'll look at my history and you've had surgery and you've had back surgery and you want some morphine, okay, we'll give you some morphine, that's okay. And and you want diazepam, okay, we'll give you some diazepam. And yeah, I'm sure it's affecting your mood, so we'll give you some antidepressants and I'll I'll refer you to this person and that person. But my wife doesn't have the same physical mark of a disability. Yeah. So she's not an amputee, although she does work with a mobility aid, she didn't do at the start of her journey. Um, and a lot of people will, will look at her and see an able-bodied person. And I don't like using, I, we're, all, we're using terms that, that are never perfect, but invisible illness is, an especially imperfect term sometimes. Oh, yeah, it really is. Yeah. I just, um, I, just, I just recorded an episode last week with, well, by the time this comes out, well, you'll hear it already, but it, it, I've recorded it with somebody who said, like, I hate the word invisible illness because sometimes it's invisible and sometimes it's not. So I can't call it invisible because it's there sometimes. And then yeah. when I have to perform able-bodiedness, it's not there anymore. And so, like, I can only imagine for her how frustrating it is, like, to be in that limbo. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're in between different specialists and you're in between different ideologies about medication. We've just had the, this new wave of um, anti-opioid stuff come through our medical establishment in the UK. Um, and, and you are really in limbo. And I guess I've... I get so frustrated with, with the way it is for her. Um, and I guess that's, that's taught me a lot more about, about the way other people must experience their disability and how, how privileged I really have been. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one aspect that's really important. And also I feel like when we're disabled and we're in relationships, we understand that, that we have partners who are wary, wary of our needs and patient with us. But when you're with another disabled person, you have to enact that same patience, that same compassion. And that isn't an, an immediate automatic thing. You know what I mean? That has yeah. to be grown. Um, we're not always as good at doing these things to other people as they're done to us. And so that's been a, a wonderful thing on my journey with her as well. And I think that's really important that you say that. that and I love the way you worded that, that it has to be grown and not, it isn't the empathy that we expect from others from especially able-bodied people sometimes isn't 
isn't automatic. And I think it's important that we all remember that it's not grown. It's, it's, or sorry, it's not automatic. It's grown. I, I love that because it's true. And I, I think, and I agree with you. I've not been in a relationship with another disabled person, but I've slept with a few and we've hung out and like things have gone that way. And I, I have even seen myself being like, Ooh, there's some ableism that I got to work through there around like yeah. someone's time management, someone's like, like, ability to move the way that I move or go fast or understand things and so yeah it's you're right it definitely does have to be grown um what other aspects of the relationship with your disabled partner are like what other stuff would you want to talk about um so I'm not really um I I I could touch on the opioid thing, actually, if you like, because I know that's a relevant thing in America at the moment. That was something we recently had. Um, sure. My wife, is, my wife has been on um, codeine, like a lot of people, for kind of um, for, for pain with joints, with Crohn's and with fibromyalgia pain. An awful lot of people are on codeine phosphate or on tramadol. And recently we've had these new guidelines come in um, that meant suddenly we get a, my wife gets a call from the pharmacist saying, we're going to have to work out a plan of you coming off opioids completely. Um, and we had this horrible conversation with the pharmacist and basically my wife was out was without meds for a couple of days, um, which is a really frustrating position to be in. Um, obviously a lot more for her than for me, but it was, it was horrible to watch. And I, ended up sending a kind of strongly worded email to the doctors and then we suddenly had a phone call where everything was okay again and, <laughs> you know it's it's so funny how this happens Andrew every single time I swear as soon as like as soon as and it, it makes me so scared for people out there who don't have the confidence or don't feel like they can do these things yeah um, I'm I'm very lucky in that I'm not conflict averse at all I will <laughs> I will I will I will happily um speak to a doctor or a practice manager at, G at GPs and tell them exactly what I think and quote different bits and all that kind of stuff. And again, that's part of the privilege of growing up being a man and being told that you're allowed to be in conflict with other people. But yeah. an awful lot of people don't have that. So, but yeah, to go back to the point, we've, we've had this thing with opiates and, and we're okay at the moment, but I'm, I've got a lot of friends here who I'm speaking to who are also um, seeing specialists for chronic illnesses, a lot of women who are being told they're going to have to come off their, their opiates entirely or titrate really, really heavily. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's one aspect that, that being with my wife has kind of taught me is about this, this kind of new wave of pharmaceutical thinking. And it must be affecting so many people. I Sometimes I just try and I think of all the disabled people out there currently in pain and I just absolutely overwhelming you are talking to one right now <laughs> as, I, as i'm recording this with you. and you know we we joked about this off the air like and on the air a little bit too like as i recorded with this with you like i'm having ibs pain constantly yeah. no matter what i do like no matter what like, so so like there are a ton of us and and you know we've gotten really good at putting a smile on doing our jobs suppressing it like not thinking about it, not like I'm going to see my family and like right after we record this, I'm getting on trying to go see my family for the day. And they're like, how are you? And I was like, mm, I'm, you know, I'm surviving. 
but like yeah. you know you put a smile on and you and you go and you do it and like people don't realize that you we're so good at masking that discomfort mm-hmm. that pain because we don't want to miss out on on life and we don't want to miss out on being with somebody and so like i can imagine like you know one of the things you wanted to talk about today was intimacy so i can imagine for your wife and for you there are moments where your chronic pain is like oh fuck this is i feel horrible but i want to be intimate with my partner now so i'm going to just swallow that down and hope that i can do this i can perform this intimacy in a way that doesn't hurt me or them yeah yeah and i think um I think the intimacy thing comes comes down to the same kind of principles in the rest of the relationship about about compassion and about patience. Um, and for maybe maybe more so for, for disabled couples and people like myself and my wife, a lot of intimacy can be about just watching a film in in bed and just um, just cuddling under the sheet, um, or it can be about possibly being able to go out and go to the cinema, although at the moment with COVID, that's, that's not too likely. Um, but yeah, it definitely affects those things because I think most able people think of, of pain and non-pain as like, oh, I cut my finger, there's pain. And yet yeah. you and I know it's so different to that. Um, you, you, know, you know, you talked earlier about the binary of disabled and non-disabled and the same with pain. People think, you're right, people think pain is I cut my arm or I cut my finger or I cut my foot and I'm hurting. And then eventually the pain will stop. When you're in chronic pain, the pain is always there, no matter what yeah. you're doing. Like, you're, like, I'm sure the two of us sitting here talking right now, both of us are like, yeah, my pain levels are about three or four. Like, it's, but it's there. And so like, I know for intimacy, for me, for me, when I want to like be with somebody intimately or fuck somebody or do whatever, like I always have to navigate. Can I, can I invite the sex worker over today? Cause am I going to have a flare up? Am I going to not feel good? Like it's a constant toss up. So I, I like what you said about like, maybe intimacy is like watching a film under the covers or like just being there for your partner. It's so much more nuanced than we're going to fuck. And I, I, yeah, I think we need to talk more about that. And of course, when people think, oh, we're going to fuck, they naturally think of some kind of penetrative act as well, because that's what we're taught is sex or proper sex, isn't it? When actually yeah. there's like a million gradations of that from. Oh, yeah. And, and maybe, maybe disability has, I don't know what you, you think about this statement, maybe disability and being with other disabled people as well teaches you more about that those million different gradations of intimacy than if we weren't disabled yeah it 100 percent does and i think it's a real again ebb and flow because just like how everyone else is taught that to say i'm gonna fuck you means penetration so are yeah. we so when we have to brush up against the reality that we can't do that and I, when i say to a partner i'm gonna fuck you what it means is like maybe we'll watch a movie and I'll get off with you using my hand or my mouth or my like or maybe my charming wit will make you want it like who knows but like having (laughs) having to like expand the idea of what fuck you is going to be has is not easy because we're not given we're not allowed to to 
think of it as something else in our culture. Yeah, I, I think, and I think when you say that as well, it makes me think of how all sex as well as seen as some kind of journey towards orgasm and that that is the act too. The act is penetrative and it's about orgasm and then it ends. Yeah. And something I've been thinking about more is how, how disabled people who um, can't or, or don't have that end stop that we have of, of seeing as seeing as orgasm, how what their sexuality is like and how that feels. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's part of why that's part of why we did why we wanted to do handy because of all that stuff. And when we you were part of the handy book of love, loss, and disability. And when we, you know, were reading those stories, people would say, like, sometimes I don't come. Sometimes I come yeah. too fast. Sometimes I sometimes I don't want to come because it hurts. And so learning to break ourselves out of that binary when we were putting that book together was like wow I never thought about this like I, I, to see the to see people share those stories of like here's how I'm sexual but it's totally incongruent to what you think it is here it is it was like wow this is like even for me a seasoned disabled person was like I didn't never think about this so like it, it's I think it's really cool how we can use our experience with disability to reshape things like I'm going to fuck you into something so much more nuanced than penetration. Yeah. And I, I think we need more of those stories out there. We need to be, we need to break that stigma so people can talk more openly about this because it, it opens things up for everyone as well, everyone else as well. It, it, you know, it, it cracks open all these different um, things you can do with other people or just with yourself. Um, we live in a very technological age, which is why kind of, you know, Handy's happening and it's going to do so well, hopefully. Um, and then there's so many opportunities out there. And I, I guess disabled people in, in some ways are kind of at the forefront of that because we've had to find a way to adapt. Yeah. Yeah. And not even adapt. We have none. Of, I think what's different about Handy too, isn't it? It's, it's not necessarily adaptation. It's creation from the ground up. And so I think a lot of us, whether we're talking about sex or, or like other tech stuff, we haven't had to adapt something. We've had, sometimes had to like throw a, throw the, whole, the thing out and say, let's make a new thing. And I love that about disabled people who are like, I want to create something completely different because adapting this and putting a stopgap measure together isn't going to work for me. So let's start something new. And that's, I, I love the ingenuity of disabled people being like, I want to make something new. Yeah, I guess we're natural innovators. So innovate is, is a better word than that, but I guess that's what we what we do and what we have to do. I mean, in some cases, in terms of sex, we're innovators. I don't know if that's... Yeah. I'm just trying to make up cool words. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, but like, no, I think, you know, we really are innovators. And I think we need to stop accepting adaptation as the be all and end all and say like no we can create something new if you like what heather and i have done with handy and what we've said from the beginning is it is disability driven design which means that from the beginning of the idea from the seed of the idea all the way through to to what to like manufacturing or whatever it is somebody with a disability is in the room saying what about this what about this what about this and that's what i think everyone whether we're talking about sex tech or whether we're talking about writing or whether we're talking about like you know computer stuff like apple 
do you have do you have disabled people in the room when they when you do stuff i don't know but like you need more of that so like stuff like that um but i wanted to like talk a little bit more about your writing because i know you're coming up on a third collection of poetry right that's right yeah it's uh so my third collection um is going to be out um 30th of september um and probably already be out when this, this comes out yeah and um it is called single window and it's called that because it was based on the kind of year to year and a half that my wife and I were um, stuck in our last house, um, living on the sofa. Um, we couldn't get up the stairs to bed. So we pretty much spent our whole life on that sofa um, and looking out the window in our living room and we're quite isolated from the rest of the world, which is before COVID as well. So that's uh, a multiplying factor now, yeah. um, a lot more isolated. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's what it is basically. It's just all about the experiences of my wife and I kind of um, living a disabled day-to-day existence. What is it like for you to put um, disability themes in poetry? And what is it like? Like, Because I think when we talk about disability or when we tweet about it, it's very different than when we do like a long form project about it. And it's, it's very like poetry allows you to be really expressive and to say different things and to be really flowery with your language. What was it like to put disability in to like put disability into that format and talk about it that way? Um, I think it came naturally. There's there's a distinction we make sometimes in writing about whether you write about something or you write through something. And although I, I am writing about disability, I like to think that that whenever I sit down at the at the keyboard, I'm writing through my disability, through the kind of um, disabled gays and, and through that kind of um, aspect of my identity. So it, it's only natural that disabled kind of themes emerge because I'm quite a confessional writer as well. So I write about things I've experienced, um, things that happen during the day, things that other people might find domestic or banal. Um, but because I'm writing through, through that lens, I'm not imagining to be in a situation different from myself. Um, these kind of themes naturally emerge and it's amazing that there isn't much more disability there isn't much disability poetry out there because there really there really isn't um, yeah there was, there, there was a poet in the in the 60s called Larry Eigner um, who got quite famous um, and she wrote these amazing poems um, sitting at his wheelchair at his window and kind of looking out of the window and he used like a single finger to hit the keyboard. And you can, you can sense his disability when you read his work. He doesn't actually talk about his disability much. You can really feel it when you read his poems. He completely wrote through his disability. Um, so if anyone out there is, is looking at disability literature, Larry Eigner is a really good, a good name. Um, Travis Lau, who we, we spoke about earlier, he's been on this podcast before. Um, so yeah, there, there are this disability poetry out there and hopefully it's, it's going to be something that we see more and more over the next few years. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's such an important part of the discussion because again, I think the artistry of talking about disability, it's a skill learning how to talk about it in a, in a way that doesn't necessarily, because with poetry, right. You're not necessarily beating the reader over the head with the fact that you're disabled. You're like gently weaving it into the experience and like 
letting them learn about it, but also hiding parts. Poetry is a really, it's a hard art form to master. And I'm, I'm certainly not very good at it, but like, <laughs> I think anybody that is, is like, that's, that's, it's really cool. And I think we do need more, um, you know, disability poetry or cripplet in that, in that vein. So I was wondering, and I, I, I'm just going to ask this off the cuff. Do you have any, do you have a poem that you could read for us? That a poem that I can read for you. Or like um, recite that you know that you could do right now for to, to get a taste of if I if I get to my laptop now, I could I could read a poem for my new collection. Definitely, yeah. All right, that. yeah, that'd be great. No problem. Okay, so my wife is using my laptop to put up pictures on the disability talent agency that we're part of in the UK. Um, oh, nice. Which is really good. Yeah, that I don't know if there's many in America, but there's there's one over here called Visible um, that is all about getting disabled people in TV and in radio and things like that. Yeah, so, I, mean, yeah. I know there's a lot in North America, but I don't know who, what they are. Um, but I know there are a bunch here. Okay, so I'll read you. This is the first part of, of the book. We watch documentaries on mute from the sofa we've lived in for the last eight months. The frames crash over us, the colours, the names, the stories rip and merge, and we don't sleep or we sleep all day. When we finally pull back the curtain, a slant of rain is leaning against the road, slick with rocking leaves. Autumn smoulders everything back to its roots, boils it to a hazy gauze of yellows and browns. We count down the seconds before our pills sing their gospel inside us. We rock in our seats, eyes rolled back towards the heaven of improved conditions all animals must maintain, however small, however distant it becomes. All day we drink tea piles of sugar and wake in yesterday's clothes to this clear, bright sunrise. And our daily bread is to not let ourselves bend or break under the weight of this light. Wow, there's so, and I, I, what I love about that is that, you know, you didn't say disability once, but the theme of disability is so prevalent in, in, in just that first piece, like, in just, I could, like, just like you said, I could feel it from what you were saying, but you didn't, you didn't say disabled, you didn't say, you didn't give any markers that we are talking about disability here, but I knew. And I think that's really cool. And that's that's a skill that I don't have yet. And so I commend you for doing it. Like that's really awesome. Thank you so much. That really means a lot. I mean, I mean the the, the flip side of poetry, I guess, is it is really hard. And like you it it's hard to toe that line, like you're saying, between talking about disability and, and not kind of beating the reader over the head with it. But the 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 other side of it is that you have a smaller audience. So um you know, if I if I was to write something to be a writer for TV shows or films, at least that way, although you do have to make it more explicit in in its themes, you get to kind of reach a large audience. Um, but yeah, I don't think we've had much disability media yet, have we? I can't think of a big TV series or a big film nowadays that really um, explores disability or represents it really accurately all the way through. I mean, not that I want to beat this dead horse, but you know ryan o'connell special is the one that i can think of that's like 
that's like really again not representative of everybody of course but yeah at least put disability on the map for a lot of people and people went oh i didn't realize it was this way and so like but i think we need more representation of wheelchair users we need more like bigger representations of amputees my friend um my friend anthony lopez was just in a show called desert inn where doesn't ever really bring up his disability or his amputation but through the whole movie you see him as an amputee and you see his prosthetic and you see him moving around and i love that because they don't talk about his disability a lot they do a little bit but not a lot but you see him being disabled the whole time and i think that kind of visual representation in media is really valuable and i i want to see more stuff like that where like the disability is not talked about but it's very clearly there i'm, I'm gonna anger you now i'm gonna give you the flip side of that which would be really good so it'd be great if we had something where there was a main character who had a disability like a prosthetic or something like that and it was never talked about that would be incredible but the flip side of that is my wife and i watch a lot of mma we watch ufc and we watch jujitsu and all sorts of stuff wow that, it's, that it's was weird... not that was not what I was expecting you to say at all. I was waiting for you to be like, we watch a lot of historical dramas with like Hugh Grant being a Well, we do. We Yeah, we love Ken Burns. We watch a lot of historical things as well, but we do love our own. We love watching people punch each other in the face as well. Um, so <laughs> there's there's a, an MMA fighter called Nick Newell who was born with a congenital um, arm amputee. So I think he's got the arm up to the elbow, I think. And he's, this incredible MMA fighter who um, obviously everyone he fights has um, is able-bodied, has two arms, but he's still able to win against like 90% of his opposition. Wonderful story. And they've just turned his life into a film. Um, I think it's called Notorious or Notorious Nick or something. And um, they, I watched the trailer for this and I saw the actor with one arm and it looks amazing. And I had to look up this guy, this main character who plays Nick Newell in it. Oh no. And you know what's happening. You know what's yeah, I know, yeah, I know what's coming. Yeah. So he is an able bodied person. They CGI'd out his arm. For the oh whole no. Film. No, 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 <laughs> no. You know, that does anger me to no end because I think the opposite is also possible. Why can't we have a disabled person? Like, if we're going to do that, which I don't think is right, we should have disabled people playing disabled people at the end. But if we're going to do this whole CGI thing, why can't a disabled person then play an able-bodied person? Why couldn't they, by that token, why don't you just CGI some legs onto and have a wheelchair user play like, you know, like if we're going to do be so silly to do that, do the flip side. Yeah. Let's have a quadruple, quadruple amputee playing Iron Man in the next Iron Man film. Yeah, and CGI the limbs in. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah I'm there for that. I, in fact, can we make this film? I'm, I want to. I want to see it. Let's let's make it happen. <laughs> um, um, well, I I'm just gonna think. So one of the things that I, that you put on the questionnaire that I want to talk about before I forget the UK disability situation. It's pretty dire over there. Um, the way like I know from people that I've talked to over there on the show government supports in the UK for disabled people with PIP and stuff like that are 
just abysmally low. Um, what it, what part of the 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 UK disability situation do you want to talk about? Well, yeah, I, it's interesting that you you know about it over there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we can we can start with the with the PIP with the PIP assessments and things. Um, both myself and my wife um, are obviously disabled, and we we've managed to to get some PIP which isn't very much, um, but what you're able to use it for over here is you can exchange all your PIP benefits for a car that is leased out to you. Um, so that's called the Motability Scheme, and I, I use all of mine for, for a car that we use. Um, but so because you, use all, because you use all of yours, does that mean you don't get any more? Or, or... That's right, yeah, they, they get the money, basically, it's exchange. So it's, it's, they, they take your money for, for leasing the car, basically. Um, so you don't get any more monthly pip because you have a car. That's right. Yeah. Um, that's horrible. I mean, let's, it is. Start, let's yeah. just start there. Just because you have a car doesn't mean you don't still need monthly income. Like what? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. No. I mean, it's, it's supposed. This money is supposed to ensure that you're able to get around. So if you don't have a car, you get the money and you use it on buses or taxis, maybe. But they they take the money for the car. Um, and now to. To go through an assessment, they they've you would have probably heard about this. That the government have um, kind of given the contracts to private companies, and they yeah. they ring you up and you do an assessment over the telephone. And if it's kind of beyond one level of complexity, they'll come and visit you in person. And it is a horrible experience. They this stranger knocks on your door. And from the moment you answer the door, they are assessing how performatively, physically disabled they think you are. Jesus, um, like that, that, that just sounds, that's like, if they're going to make, have you seen that movie Run? Yes, I have, yeah. yeah. If they're going to make a run too, can it be you running away from your assessor being like, no, 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 <laughs> can it be that? Because, I mean, that sounds, that's, that sounds terrifying. It, it, it would be terrible. It wouldn't be a 90-minute film, I tell you that. I mean, it'd be, it'd be done after about five minutes, probably. But yeah, it, it, it is terrifying. And this person is there to ask you questions. Um, and if you answer the question, do you use Facebook to socially network, then automatically that they imply from that that you have full control over your hands and digits, that you are cognitively um, okay. Yeah, so they'll ask you a lot of questions like this. What are your hobbies? If you go and make them a cup of tea, if they ask for a cup of tea, they'll be noting that down. They'll be seeing how easily you got up, how how you put the kettle on. If you carried the drink, that means you get zero points for being able to prepare your own food and drink. Oh, my God. Um, so basically, you, can you can't, if they come at the door, you can't even let them in because the minute you let them in, they, they're going to, like, that, that docks a point against you. Yeah, I mean, ba- basically... If you really want it to be a true assessment, you've got to try and try and ensure that you give the answers on on your kind of on one of your worst days or, or a representative answer of how things are the majority of the time. If if you have a chronic illness that wavers depending on how you are, and you get a knock on the door from a, a PIP assessment person on a really good day, you're going to get zero points and. Um, you're not going to get any benefits at all. It doesn't matter if the next day, due to ME or, or chronic illness or whatever, you are 
stuck in bed and not able to use the toilet and not able to get yourself water. What matters is, is what they can see over the period of this kind of 20 to 60 minutes. And that's 20 what to 60 minutes is what they yeah. give you. Do you know Something how like that? Yeah. Do you know how dynamic my disability is and how much it changes from 20 to 60 minutes? For reference, I've been talking to you for about an hour and 10 minutes. And in that time, my pain level has gone from a seven to about a two, back up to about a six. Like, how are they supposed to? That's, and I'm assuming the person that comes to the door is not a fellow disabled person. I'm assuming they're like some uptight British white lady who like wants to tell you you can't get benefits. Yeah, pretty much with it, with it, with a, you know, uh, uh, a stack of paper and a pen and just sitting down on one of your seats and just, just writing down what, what she can see and, and the answers you tell her. And even if you tell her X, she can still write down Y if she wants to, if she thinks that based on her assessment, you're able to do more than, than you say you can do. So yeah, that's, that's where we are at the moment in the UK. I mean, I mean, that could be a whole episode by itself. Like, that's terrifying. I'm going to say it now. Anyone else in the UK that wants to come and share a horror story with me about the PIP assessments, fuck, we need to talk about more this more because holy fuck, that's terrifying. Um, okay, well, if you were to, like, if you were to make the PIP assessment the way you wanted it to be, how, okay, before I get to that question, so after all this horrible interview is done and they assess you, what is the maximum amount of, assess- like, let's say they agree that you're disabled and can do all the things, mm. or they agree partially that you're disabled and can do part of the things. What do they, what did they end up, what does the end of the assessment look like? Like, okay, we're going to give you money now based on what we think. So the end of the assessment, they don't tell you what they think whatsoever. They keep all their answers to themselves which just increases the anxiety that you have. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah. And then at some point you'll get a phone call and somebody will say, there's a letter in the post. You've got zero points or six points. And you can request a copy of the assessor's um, notes and they'll explain why they said what they said. And then 90% of disabled people will appeal it. And um, a lot of them will end up in a court tribunal where they will have to physically go to a court and stand there in front of three or four people who will judge based on what they say, um, what, was, what was right and what was wrong. And, and even though the majority of these decisions get overturned in, in court, it is a year to 18 months before you'll get to court. And B, it doesn't stop them from doing the same thing again. It, doesn't, it has no impact on the government or the people who are doing these assessments. So it doesn't change anything. And even if you do get to court and they, they reinstate your benefits, you will get assessed in what, two years time, four years time and go through the whole process again. <laughs> oh my, oh my God, I can't. Yeah. Wow, that's fucked on so many levels. Like, Oh, fuck. I, that makes me so angry for you and for everybody dealing with that because I, we live in a system here where, I mean, as far as I know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cross my fingers and my, all the things when I say this, but I hope 
where we live, like where I live, they assess you once usually. Mm. And right now they're so overstaffed. Like as long as you send in what you make every month, like your monthly, like what you earned, they'll send you a check. And I don't talk to my worker unless like I get a letter saying we've cut you off or whatever. He's like, I don't, I don't speak to an assessor. I don't speak yeah. to anybody. And I love that because I can, you know, fly under the radar really a lot. I don't have to say anything. I don't have to just, I just stay quiet and I give them what they ask me for. Even if I have to doctor some numbers to give them what yeah. they want, I can give them what they want. And then they go away. I cannot imagine the anxiety if one of those people knocked on my door right now and said, Andrew, we're here to see how much we think you can do. And we're not disabled people. We're not, we don't have lived experience. We don't have compassion either. Like, I, that needs to be a horror movie. Somebody in the UK needs to make that a movie. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, 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 you know, these, these people are uh, paid by a, a private company and they're paid very well because I imagine it, it's a hard, it's hard to keep doing this to people. Um, I, everyone has compassion in them and to repeatedly go around people's houses and know you're going to be taking away their money because they didn't express themselves in the way they should have or, or because they got up to, to grab that piece of bread that they passed you or, or anything like that it must be it must be difficult well you'd hope it'd be difficult to sleep at night but I mean the, the real the real fault lies with we're under a, a very conservative government here um and yeah Boris yeah Boris. yeah it, Boris is pretty much UK Trump really he's he's pretty awful um and we've got to such a state here with such apathy about politics that I can't even see that there's kind of a there's not even a, a real kind of rebellion against it anymore. Everyone's so apathetic about it. Exhausted and just tired, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what's it like over there at the moment? Um, well, Canada, we have Trudeau. Which, and yeah. we know, I know we all think he's handsome and fabulous, but <laughs> he's not really. I mean, he's better than the conservatives. He's, he's, he's liberal, so I guess for you it would be like, do you guys have liberal over there? It's Tory and yeah, Labour. Labour is our liberal kind of. Yeah, so I guess government. he's he's Labour basically. But again, all the parties we have, we have three parties: we have Labour, National Democratic Party, and Conservatives. And none of them. And then we're just about to go into a, into an election here right now. By the time this comes out, the election will probably be done. But none of the party leaders have done enough for disabled people. Like, mm. I did. I don't think. I don't think. And I think this is universal across the board. I don't think it matters who's in power. I think disabled people in terms of politics will always be last or will always be used as a, as a bargaining chip or a, a, a photo op or like something to be like, look, we're being seen to be good, but we're not actually doing anything. Like, yeah. I think that like in Canada, we don't have, like in America, they have the Americans with Disabilities Act in Canada, we don't have anything like that yet. We don't have, like, and I know in the UK, you have like a, I don't remember what it's called, but you have some sort of national disability policy, right? Yeah, it's, it's illegal to be, yeah, to discriminate someone based on their disability. Although in, in practice, it doesn't really get applied, but we have a similar thing to the ADA, but you don't have that at all over there. Yeah, we don't have that yet. That's still being tabled and looked into years and years. Like we, don't, we still don't have something 
that, that a law we have our charter of rights and freedoms in canada which says like you can't discriminate based on disability but like you say in practice like that's and you know i think in all these policies i would be surprised to see if ableism was in there like do they do they name it in the british policy i don't think so and the same with america like i don't think i mean most most even most people now who bring out like like say a lot of companies and people bring out diversity statements they don't mention disability in it so yeah. we're not even mentioned in terms of that like I, what, I think, what they'll say is like everybody for all abilities and it's like no 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 that's not what we're talking about here like we're saying disability yeah and of course if if this if there was it wasn't legal to discriminate against disabled people then you and i would be able to access government buildings private buildings everything like that is you wouldn't be on a fucking point people. system in your in your country where yeah. like you go to get a person a cup of tea and they dock you a point. Like that's terrible. That's so horrible. Speaking of, before I forget, with that system, with the PIP system, what is the goal? Do you want higher points or do you want lower points? Yeah. So the more points you get means you'll either get put on enhanced, which is the top, or standard, which is you know um, just below it. Um, but if you get below a certain threshold, you won't you won't be able to gain benefit. And like I said earlier, regardless of the fact that that you may have profound disabilities that will affect you for the rest of your life, before we had lifelong benefits, now we still get assessed every two years or four years or five years. Um, you know, my my leg isn't going to grow back, and I'm not yeah. going to be able to walk. You know, unaided any differently next year than this year. So there you go. And your wife's gonna have like, your wife is gonna have Crohn's no matter what. I, I wonder yeah. like what is, because I know in the UK too, if you're on benefits and you're married, like that's fucked. So for the two of you, like what what does that look like? Are your benefits halved, or do they understand that because you're both disabled, like you get some, or how? Do... So you you get. If you're both unable to work due to disabilities, um, if we were single people living in different houses, we get a certain amount. When you're together, you get a joint um, benefit, and it's not as much as two people individually would be, because it assumes as you're living in a household that expenses will be lower and things like that. Yeah. And it's not; it doesn't it doesn't really cover the shortfall, though. To be fair, um, yeah, I mean it, it's difficult and. Um, especially being a writer I've been I've been lucky that I got funded for a PhD a couple of years ago and I've been lucky that I've, I've had bits of bobs like that that kind of help make things up but um it's it's pretty bleak otherwise just living on benefits in the UK yeah I mean I mean that's basically the tag for the show that's what that, <laughs> that's what I might use for the episode it's pretty bleak to live on benefits <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so much you said that was of value today, and I could sit and talk with you for like five more hours because I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, but how can the people? I want to be, be able to buy your third collection. I want people to know where they can pick it up because we should be p- paying our disabled writers and buying their shit so that they can make a living. But also because the stuff we're talking about is valuable, so everyone should buy Daniel's new collection. How do we do that? Thank you so much. Well, um, so um, you can 
there should be a link I'll put on my website when it comes out. But otherwise, if, if you if you look for single window or look for my name, Daniel Sluman, in any any place you look online for books, you should be able to find it. Um, and you can you can find these things more easily if you follow me on Twitter. I'm at Daniel Sluman and on Instagram the same. And um, hopefully yeah hopefully it will it will be um available to people um across the atlantic and if not you can buy it as an ebook and if people can't afford to buy it i've always been happy occasionally to friends to send it as a pdf because you know it's, it's important to get this stuff out there yeah it is but I, I mean if you're able to financially please pick it up because yeah. being being a disabled writer and and trying to make your wares that way is really hard um and so, Daniel, I could, I, I definitely want to talk to you like off the air and we should WhatsApp because you and I have a lot of similar ideas on stuff and we should, we should talk more. Um, but thank you so much for coming on today. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Andrew. This is wonderful. Thanks so much. It was such a pleasure. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right, friends. That's another episode of Disability After Dark from me, your Disabled Daddy, Andrew Gerza. If you want to follow my work, you can follow me on social media on Instagram and Twitter at Andrew Gerza underscore, or you can follow my website www.andrewgerza.com to find out more about what I do. And of course, you can follow us on Patreon to get the show one day early and completely ad-free by going to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark, or you can send us an email to disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com and let us know your ideas for an episode, for a minisode, or for a guest spot. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back to shine a bright light on your disabled stories next time. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was created, recorded, and produced by Cripple & Co. Productions and Andrew Gerza. Any and all use of materials, graphics, audio recordings, etc. cannot be used or distributed without express permission. If you would like to use an episode of the podcast or license an episode of the podcast on your website, please consider emailing Andrew Gerza and Cripple & Co. Productions at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com. Copyright 2022.